Hey everybody, this is Gene Troyer. I'm the lead pastor of Restore Church. And what a pleasure it is to welcome you to our podcast. It's my hope that you will be marked by love and encouraged in your faith and inspired to become all God has created you to be. Now I invite you to lean in and enjoy the podcast. We've been in this, uh, this series now for a number of weeks. It's idols, idols, and we've been, uh, uh, I don't know about you, but I have been uh, convicted about those things in my life that have taken the place of Jesus. So maybe it would help if we would just say, what do you love most? What do you love most? What do you spend time on? What do you dream, daydream about? If you think on these things, you may find the answer to what has the potential or is already an idol in your life. So we identified a bunch of things in the first week. Um, let me just say that maybe, maybe for you, maybe you worship suffering. Suffering. Isn't that odd to think about that? Like, I worship the pain in my life. I worship suffering. That may be true for you. Maybe you've never gotten over the emotional pain of losing your spouse or your spouse walking out on you and divorcing you. Maybe you've never resolved the pain of the boss that treated you unjustly or the pastor that, that humiliated you. I know a great way to break to break away from the idol of suffering. And if you're wondering, what does it mean? What does it mean? Well, if life only has meaning and I only have value if I stay in pain, that would be an indication that you are worshiping the suffering that has happened or is happening in your life. Stop and forgive. Forgive. It's just a short word but a major mountain for many of us to cross. Forgive. It doesn't mean that was what was done to you is right or good or reasonable. It simply means that you're going to refocus. You're going to forgive and you're going to refocus your worship on the one who is Jesus, the one who is worthy of your worship. His name is Jesus and you're going to worship him instead of the pain in your life. Maybe your idol of preference is materialism. Like life only has meaning and I only have value if I am wealthy and have very nice things. Break that by admitting it needs to be broken. Repent and then live generously. Give some stuff away. Break the chain. Break the chain of materialism. As a Christian, an idol is anything that has been elevated above the rightful place of God in our lives. So this is week number four of idols, and today I want to talk to you about the truth is. The truth is. In the fourth book of the New Testament, the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, chapter Jesus is in front of Pontius Pilate. And if you remember, the disciples have all kind of left him at this point. The, the religious leaders have brought Jesus to Pontius Pilate. They've said he is a traitor. He is saying he's a king. He's coming up with all kinds of reasons why Jesus should be tried and condemned. And so this conversation happens between Jesus and Pilate. And Pilate says to him in verse 37, he says, So you are a king. So you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king, 
And for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And then Pilate, and I can only imagine how he said this, but in my imagination, I think Pilate said as he's walking back towards the religious leaders, what is the truth? What is the truth? Have you ever asked that question? What is the truth? Somebody, tell me the truth. What is the truth? What's true about idols? Are they real? Are they real? Are they true? We should consider what it means to be for something to be real or for something to be true. But before we do that, I want you to think about the surface idols, those things that are easily identifiable. We've been talking about them for three weeks. These things like, like um, uh, let's see, materialism, we've already said that, um, uh, wanting to be included. So what was that one that was called the inner ring? Those things that, that, well, if I could just get into that circle of friends, that would mean that I would be valued. That would mean that I would have meaning in my life if I could just be connected with those people. Work, if I can achieve. These are all things that, top of mind, things that rise to the surface of things that we, if we're not careful, will begin to worship. Race and culture are two others. Relationships, family is a big one. If my kids behave a certain way, well, then I am valued and then my life is worth living if my kids behave. Well, real, for something to be real, according to many philosophers, it has actual existence and substance. This podium, don't tell me it's not real. It's hard, it's a surface, it is real. The Bible, this Bible is a real book. This is real, it has substance, it has existence. When something is true, it has to derive from evidence and reason. Evidence and reason. So, what about the, the term that we often hear? Well, I'm gonna speak my truth. What about my truth? What I wanna say to that is that it is true to your experience. But it's often more accurate to say, when we wanna say my truth, it's often more accurate to say, this is my opinion, or this is my perspective. Because if we're not careful, my truth becomes a statement that closes the door to any meaningful dialogue about the actual truth of your truth. So when we say, this is my truth, <laughs> kind of shuts the door on any conversation, doesn't it? Because who can argue with your truth? But if you say, this is my opinion, this is my perspective, it allows for more dialogue. So what does all of this have to do with the place of idols in our lives? What does the truth have to do with this internal dialogue, this focus on what the reality is of my own propensity toward misplacing God? I don't mean misplacing him like you forgot where he is. I mean giving him a place in your life that is not the right place. You're moving him off to the peripheral. All right, so misplacing God in our lives what does this have to do with this? Well, last week we closed with Romans 12, 1 and 2. In the message translation, this is how it reads. So here's what I want you to do. 
God helping you take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings out the best of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. So here's the key point from that passage that I want to talk to you about this morning. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. See, idols have a way of slowly, not abruptly, typically it's a slow slide into our lives They make their way into our lives in a way that we're almost unconscious of. I mean, I remember how to boil a frog. Do you remember how to boil a frog? I mean, you don't just throw a frog in a pot of boiling water and expect to boil him like he's going to stay there, right? If you throw it into a pot of boiling water, he's going to jump right out. But if you put that frog in there, he's going to lay on his back. He's going to float around a bit. It's tepid water. It's room temperature. Ooh, it's good stuff. It's like how my pool felt yesterday. It's floating around in there. You crank that up a little bit, turn the heat up, the heat up, the heat up. He doesn't even know it's increasing. And all of a sudden, he's frog legs. Science has proved that this analogy doesn't work. But it worked for what I wanted to tell you this morning. Culture would have us believe that it is true and right. Culture would have us believe that it is true and right. When we subscribe to that, because we do sometimes, because we humans are worshipers, and we find whatever it is that we can, we can align ourselves with, whatever makes us feel good and, and, and important, we begin to, real, begin to worship culture without even realizing it. Approval. Comfort, control, power, these are root idols that we identified in the first week. And just as we don't realize that these things are attaching themselves to us, we're also often unaware that we are acclimating to the culture around us. And we begin to live like, think like, believe like those who don't believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior of the world. But to do otherwise may be making us uncomfortable. It may cost us approval. It may be our, the loss, may, it may mean the loss of control and power. And slowly, but surely, because we fear loss of these idols, we acclimate to cultural idolatry, which means that if you look at the lives of many Christians this morning, you'd be hard-pressed to find any distinctives that set them apart from the world at large. Being indoctrinated in the the, uh, misinterpretation of 2 Corinthians 6.17, which says, come out from among them and be ye separate. This means that to have a major, uh, the way I heard this, the way I was taught, was that we would have a major focus on the outward appearance, on our lifestyle, and cause it's, uh, the adherence of this particular translation to be stuck in the past. And this has been, like, for many of us, the things we learned when we were young, this is a lifelong process of thinking rightly. 
maybe for you, if you grew up in the church, you were taught to avoid certain people, to not interact. And often it was out of fear rather than conviction, disconnection and suspicion instead of understanding. But I'm telling you, God rarely calls us out of connection and friendship with the people around us. Engaging the culture, it's our, it's mine, it's your responsibility. But our mandate is to do so without compromise. Our mandate is to do so without compromise. When Jesus was talking to or was praying prior to his crucifixion, he prayed this for his disciples and he prays this for us this morning as well. He says in John chapter 17, he prays these, this prayer. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them, which means to declare them holy, set them apart. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. I have sent them into the world, but they are not of the world. In it, but not of it. He's pointing to today in 2021 as well. And he's saying, you guys, I need you to go. I need you to go. I need you to be in the world. But go with my spirit and go differently than everyone else. Go differently than the culture itself. I want to go to uh, the book of Revelation. Book of Revelation, chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Let me just read this for you. This is a letter to the church in Pergamum. This is Jesus through John speaking to the church at Pergamum. Pergamum was, uh, was in the country of uh, modern-day Turkey, on the coast of modern-day Turkey. So this is what he says. He says, I know your works and where you live, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold firmly to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But, but I have a few things against you. You have there those who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. All right, let's, let's just break it down for just a minute. The, 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 the city of Pergamum, it was known for its beauty, it was known for its wealth, it was known for its literary prowess. Consider this in the ancient world. Um, Pergamum had over 200,000 uh, volumes, books, in their library. No printing presses, but they had over 200,000 volumes in their library. Pergamum was known for the arts, uh, known for various temples to various gods. They had the spectacular altar to Zeus. And, and Pergamum was known for having many, many palaces. So it's a, it's, it sounds like a great place to live, doesn't it? If you like the arts, if you like reading, if uh, knowledge, it seems like a play, great place to be. But it's also a, the seat of Satan, which seems really, really harsh, doesn't it? He says, I know, I know uh, your works, where you live, where Satan's throne is. What does that mean? Well, it would indicate that, that Pergamum was a center of worship of pagan gods, a center of idolatry, where if you were going to declare yourself a Christian who worships the one true God, who claims Jesus is the Savior, you would probably elicit a whole bunch of hostility and resistance to the point where it was dangerous for your life, as is described by the martyrdom of Antipas. Verse 14, he says, 
So that's, that's the culture, that's the place. In verse 14 he says, but I have a few things against you. You have there those who hold to the teaching of Balaam. You guys remember Balaam? He had the talking donkey before Shrek and Eddie Murphy, right? He had the, that's the guy, that's the guy. So here is Jesus speaking through John, calling the teachings and doctrines of the church at Pergamum similar to that of Balaam. Where did this come from and what's the connection? Okay, we're going to roll it back to the fourth book of the Old Testament in the book of Numbers, chapter 25. I'm going to speed through this, but I want you to hear this. So Israel is on their way to the promised land. They've been in the, in the, in the wilderness for close to 40 years. And they show up, millions of people by now, they show up in the territory of Moab and Midian. Moab and Midian. They came uh, with a reputation for everywhere they went. God was blessing them. They were winning and conquering other nations and territories. And Balak, king of Moab, is freaked out, hires a pagan prophet, a sorcerer, whose name is Balaam. He hires him to come and pronounce a curse over Israel, but and he does, after some wrangling with God about this. He climbs on his donkey. The donkey talks to him on the way there. Turns out Balaam can't do anything but bless the children of Israel. And King Balak is furious. He is desperate. And so he, takes, he gives him a change of scenery. He takes Balak to three different places. But no matter what mountains he's on, no matter what valley he's looking over, Balaam, uh, Balaam can only pronounce a blessing over the children of Israel. Balaam says, or Balaam realizes that the power, the power he was operating in wasn't going to withstand the hand of God. It wasn't going to withstand his protection and his blessing over the children of Israel. He recognized that their God was a holy God and that impacted how the children of Israel lived. Nothing he did to curse them was working. So he devised a scheme to create a temptation that the men of Israel would find difficult to resist. Here it is. Balak, tempt them with sex and food and let them do from within what we've been trying to do from without. Tempt them with their, their base, their huma- the baseness of their humanity. Let's tempt them with sex and food. And let them do from within what we've been trying to do from without. So Balak sends the women of Moab to win the hearts of the men of Israel who believed a lie instead of embracing the truth. They were seduced with sex. And the women then invited them to the sacrifice of their gods. And they bowed down and they worshipped the gods of the Moabites. They forgot, listen up, they forgot the goodness of God and succumbed to the temptation and acclimated into Moabite culture until their worship was no longer to Yahweh, but to Baal. And there it is. There it is. There's the connection. The teaching of Balaam in the church at Pergamum wasn't so much that they were outright denying God's name or even their Christian faith. The problem was much more subtle and easy to fall into. And this will get us too. The truth is, just like the Israelites and just like some of us, 
They had become comfortable with sin and aligned themselves to the world through spiritual compromise, immorality, and idolatry. That they become so well adjusted to the culture that they fit into it without even thinking. They traded the truth for a lie. So we need to ask the question, what is truth? What is truth? And I want to declare to you this morning, this is not new news for many of you, but Jesus is. Jesus is the truth. He is real and he is the truth. We talk about real life around here, like living into real life. This is what we're talking about. This is embracing the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is real life. This is the truth. We believe this because of evidence, because of reason, and because of our experience. See, when we follow Jesus, it means that our lives are not just our own anymore. It means that your life is focused on the others in your life and those that you are still going to meet. When we follow Jesus, we do as he did. We follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. We rely on him to lead us into all truth. Through Jesus, we identify every idol and we come against every stronghold because, because the truth is, when we worship false gods, we are either deliberately or unconsciously pledging allegiance to evil spirits whose only goal is to take God's rightful place in your life. The truth is, the truth is, if we're going to, to pledge allegiance to Jesus, this is the way we're going to come against strongholds because strongholds play in the mind, the imagination, the thoughts. Guys, we need a renewed mind. We take every thought captive. We demolish arguments and every pretension, every claim that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. The truth is, in the name of Jesus, we name and we break every stronghold and every idol. It's got to go in the name of Jesus. Would you stand with me? The truth is, in the name of Jesus, we break every stronghold, every idol, and we say it must go. The truth is, to the follower of Jesus, an idol is nothing. It has no power over you. Do you hear this? As a follower of Jesus, you have the power of the Spirit of God in you. And we succumb so easily. We feel so weak, don't we? I can't do it. No, we can't on our own. But that's why we say, Jesus is who I follow. The way of Jesus is the way of life and grace and mercy. The way of Jesus is the way of the victorious. It is the way of those who come against the idols in their lives and say, you have no more control in my life. These so-called gods, these idols that we tend to worship, they're just demons and their deceit, their fakery has no true power over us. 
when we follow, can I get an amen? Like I never say, can I get an amen? But can I get, do you believe this this morning? Here's what I know. Here's what I know. Sometimes we've created a culture here that is very much like this or like this. And it is my firm belief that if we're going to win in life, if we're going to win in our spiritual life, if we're going to defeat the demonic who sets itself up as idols in our lives, if we're going to break the attachments that we've made to that thing in your life that is suspect at best and at worst has consumed you and created a version of yourself that you never intended for it to do. If we're going to break the bonds, those chains, and step into freedom this morning, we got to change our posture a little bit. We got to open our arms. We got to open ourselves up to what the glory of God wants to do in us. So I never do this. I don't think. You remind me later if I've done it before. But all of us have idols that need to be broken. And sometimes that requires us to do something besides this or this. And sometimes it requires us to say, I'm stepping out and I'm actually going to identify with what's being said. And I'm going to take a step that says, here's the line. You have no right to cross it anymore. This is what we're speaking to that idol in our lives. You have no right to cross this line anymore. No more. And so what I'm about to say, I don't want you to do because I said it. I want you to do it because you believe you need to do it. I'm inviting you, I'm asking you to take a step out of where you're sitting and move your way up here. And this is an action you're taking this morning to say, no more, no more. Brenda asked me after the first weekend, she said, well, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm identifying these idols. So what am I gonna do now? She said it more clearly than that. She said, what's the next thing? And I held off until this weekend. We all know the answer, but sometimes it is taking a step and saying, the anger I'm feeling, the frustration I'm feeling, the things I've attached myself to, the suffering, the pain in my life, the materialism, the, all of it is taking my heart away from my relationship with Jesus. So I'm telling you this morning, move your way up front. If you don't come, it's okay. It's not on me. It's not on me. But if you want to declare this is from this day forward, then I want you to come. Make your way up front. And during the worship experience, we'll be up here praying with you. There'll be prayer team members up here. And um, we're going we're gonna to come against the things in your life that have compromised you, that have made it so that you no longer function in the way that God has called you to function. So if you're up there, back there, come on up. Let's do this. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. Please rate and review us on Spotify and iTunes and join us again for next week's podcast. We love you and pray blessing and peace over you and your family.